Heavenly Father, we um, are reminded once again of how fractured our world is and how desperately in need of grace we are. We lay before you our church family over in the Ukraine and the surrounding areas that are taking refugees in. We just ask that you would grant strength, hope, faith, courage, even to testify to the fact that there is a king who gave his life for us so that we could rise from the dead and live forever in a kingdom without end. Lord, we look forward to the day in which the lion will lie with the lamb, when people will beat their swords into plowshares, when the peace of Christ will cover the earth, and we know only you can do that. We look forward to your return. We look forward to kingdom come. And Lord, we just ask, come quickly. We pray that you would help us here to live as lights, to follow you in a way that is surrendered and willing to sacrifice, even experience pain if need be in order to testify to the, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and to live out our lives in such a way that people can see visibly that we follow him. I pray as we open the word together that you would instruct our minds and our hearts and that we would be willing to act on what we hear by your grace, through your spirit, for the sake of the glory of Christ, I pray, amen. We are in the little tiny letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. Um, people have told me I had to look that up in the table of contents, so feel free to do that. Um, it is a letter that was written by Paul to a Christian slave owner regarding an escaped or runaway slave named Onesimus. To introduce it, though, I just have to, I want to tell you a little bit about my week this last week. Not because I need a hug, because I don't. Maybe I do, I don't know. But uh, like, like Damon, um, we traveled to Washington on Tuesday, and we laid my wife, Deanna's mother, um, to rest. Um, and I just, it was Wednesday, okay? So Wednesday was the graveside, where they lower her casket into the ground. And that was at 10 o'clock, and then at 1 o'clock was her memorial service. So 10 o'clock came, and there were about 20, 25 of us there. And um, one of the relatives, a very close person to Deanna's mother, um, walked up to Deanna's dad, my wife's dad, and gave him a hug, stepped back, and said, oh, no. She fell to the ground and within minutes died. No, it's just, we're, we're just, we started, they started doing CPR, and again, we're there to lay one to rest, and a relative dies on the spot, right at the time we're supposed to stop at the graveside. Then come the fire engines, and the, uh, you know, the, the ambulances, and we're just all standing there. Like, I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? Like, I'm supposed to lead this graveside, and here now we're worried about the fact that somebody else just died. I, there's no seminary class that can prepare you for that <laughs> whatsoever. I'm just like, all right, Lord, you know. And you do what you do in those times, and you just move forward, right? Well, that was at 10 o'clock. We didn't actually start the graveside until about 10.30, 10.45 because of obvious reasons. We did it. We laid her body to rest, and then we went to the memorial. Um, and people shared, and, and one of the ladies who shared found out later she was rushed to the ER with what sounded like a stroke. <laughs> like, 
Okay, and then, of course, Russia invades Ukraine. All on Wednesday, January, or February 23rd. It was uh, one of those days where just kind of everything just goes wackadoo, <laughs> right? But the good thing about it was both those ladies knew the Lord. And both I'm confident are in the presence of God, especially my mother-in-law. And I have to tell you, um, part of a memorial service that is, or call it a celebration of life, whatever you want to call it, let's call it a celebration of God's faithfulness, uh, is the fact that you get to hear inspiring stories of how one person's Christian life changed others. And the, the service went for two hours and 15 minutes, so it was a little bit of a long one. But testimony after testimony of uh, how many lives my wife's mother, Levina Johnson, changed. Um, she had a, like an, a, 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 what do you call it, a revolving door in their house of people coming to live with the missionaries and so forth. And I just heard story after story after story of how a person's living out their faith and showing love and opening their home made such a difference. And it was inspiring. So it was a good day. But the one I remember probably the most was afterwards at the little reception that we had. Uh, a man named Endry, uh, probably mid, later 40s, you know, young like me. <laughs> um, and he was telling me his story. And I just wanted to convey it to you because, again, it shows how powerful um, a Christian family can be. He was sharing with me that his, 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 his upbringing and his family life was just complete chaos. Like the family he grew up in was a completely broken family. And in his late teens, he was invited by the Johnson family, my wife's family, into the home. <laughs> I'm sorry. And he said, I got to see for the first time what Christian family looks like. I got to see people love each other, laugh together, serve each other, enjoy being with each other. And he says, as a result of being brought into that Christian family context, he said, I gave my life to Christ. And there he is, like two and a half decades later, with a wife serving the Lord and making his own impact. And I thought, you know, that is a, um, a vivid display of how Christian family can have an internal impact. Not just the family in your home, I mean, that's, that's, that is like the, a little outpost, your little family in your home as you uh, practiced your Christianity as a family. It should have an impact on the neighbors around you. But also on a, in a church sense, it's like the church is above all else a family. And how we relate to each other can have an eternal impact. And I think that's why um, Paul the Apostle, and one of the reasons I had that read um, Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, um, why, why unity was so important to him. Because he recognized that how the church relates to each other, how family, Christian family relates to each other, speaks. The letter he wrote to Corinth, the first one, Paul. You know, it, it was a messed up church. And there are no perfect churches, so if you're looking for one, you're not going to find one. You can find healthier churches, and you can find unhealthy churches. You're not going to find a perfect church. But before he ever dealt with the false doctrine of 1 Corinthians 15, of the resurrection and the gruesome sin of chapter 5, chapter 1 deals with fragmentation of the family, as if I have to deal with this now. I have to nip this in the bud now, because 
the relational fabric of the church is so important. And it's important because the gospel is fundamentally communal. It's about reconciliation. It's about bringing reconciliation between God and sinful man through the cross, and also to bring reconciliation between people groups and individuals to make us one family. That's, the gospel is fundamentally communal. It centers on reconciliation through the cross of Jesus Christ. But another reason it's important is because it's supposed to tell the world that we're something different. That the gospel of Jesus Christ that unifies people actually works. Paul said this about the mystery of the gospel. He said, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, two people groups now, one. And then Jesus talked about the outward effects of this body when he said, and this is an overused maybe verse, but maybe we need to relook at it again, especially in light of how the church is today, many, unfortunately. He says, by this all people will know, all people will know something, knowledge will be dispersed, that you're my disciples if you love one another. So if you, the, the relational dynamic is supposed to speak to the world, which is why it's so important. But at the same time, I think you and I would both testify that working on those relationships and working out the kinks and dealing with offenses and offering a forgiveness is hard. It's difficult work. It's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. But it wasn't easy back then either. And that's what's important to remember. I just think about the dynamics of the early church, first century. Somehow, Jewish people were supposed to be family with Gentile people, non-Jewish people. So Jewish people who were used to ordering their diet around the laws of Moses had to have potlucks with lobster-eating Gentiles. That would have been a challenge. Do we have church on Saturday, which is the Jewish tradition on Shabbat? Or do we worship God on Sunday, which is Resurrection Day? There were language barriers, barriers, national barriers, Egyptian believers and Jewish believers, Greek believers, Roman believers. How do you maintain some sense of unity with all of those differences? I mean, this is probably my, uh, maybe I'm jaded. I don't think I'm jaded, but parts of the American church have a difficult time getting along over things like masks, vaccines, color of carpet, and whether you should cut down a tree on the church property. I've experienced that stuff, so have you. It's not the deep things that divide us, like is, is Jesus God? That's, a, that's, a, that's something the, the, the church was willing to go to the mattresses for. But no, it's little things usually, which is why I think the topic is so important. Here we come to this little book of Philemon, and yet there's another disconnect that I think it shows that the power of the gospel has the ability to heal. That is the relationship between a slave owner who is a Christian and a slave. A slave owner and a slave. Some in our culture and society are turning to the gospel according to Karl Marx to fix the aftermath of our slavery history, slave history. 
which isn't a gospel. It divides, it damages, and it enslaves. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he's done and the power of the Spirit at work has the capacity to heal the the sharpest divides. And this is one of those divides, the book of Philemon, addressing this issue in a way that's promoting healing and unity rather than division. Now, we've looked at the first part of the letter. We're coming to the end that Paul affirms, first of all, your family, Philemon, the master. I'm praying for you guys. I'm giving thanks, and I'm praying for the situation because I want it to be healed. So he recognizes this needs to be a work of grace. Then third, what we looked at last week is he appealed to him. He didn't command him. He appealed to him. In particular, he appealed to love. What would Christian love do? In what we're looking at this morning in verses 11 through 16, he's going to continue that appeal, but with an emphasis on three words. Three words. One is change. Change. Providence. And risk. But in slightly different order. Change, risk, and providence. So let me just read the verses for you and then let's consider them. I'm going to back up to verse 8 to give flow. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, he knows what's right in terms of the slave relationship, and I think it's to let his slave go. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, which is an adult man, but now considered a child in the faith, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. That is, he is converted to Christ, and now Paul is a spiritual father. This is the beginning of our section. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending back my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on, on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. He wants it to be authentic transformation. You have to be, make a willing choice to do this. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or as a slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So as he seeks to promote this healing between runaway Christian slave converted to Jesus and this Christian master, one of the things that he affirms is that he's changed. Like real change, or should I say reconciliation, bringing two parties together, requires a change of heart. He emphasizes the change in verse 11. He's formerly, he was useless to you. Imagine putting that on your resume. Useless. I say that the, the guy was useless, probably indicating that he was, a, he was a poor slave to begin with. Maybe he didn't work very hard. Maybe he was a cheat. We don't know. It doesn't say. But the bottom line is you would not want him on your payroll. That's who he used to be. But he goes on to say, but now he's changed. This is the, the mighty apostle Paul talking about a runaway slave. And guess what? He's saying his heart's been changed. See, we believe that the gospel changes hearts. 
that the true change has to start from the inside, not the outside, right? That when we hear how, how gracious and merciful God's love is through the cross of Jesus Christ, love we didn't deserve, grace we didn't deserve, but it came to us anyway and said, I love you despite you, and I am making the payment for your sin, and I want you to be mine, and I want you to live forever with me. When that takes hold of your heart, it melts the ice of the heart, and it creates a new person. A person who understands what humility is, starts thinking about others before themselves. You start to see things correctly, and you start moving in the right direction. And Paul's insisting, Onesimus, God has gotten a hold of his heart, Philemon, and he's changed. He's not who he used to be. Now, he's useless, or excuse me, useful. Indeed, useful to you and to me. Something's changed. His character's changed. He's a different person. And he emphasizes it even more when he goes back, goes on and says, I'm sending him back to you, sending back my heart. I'm so tied to this runaway slave who's been converted to Jesus. He refers to him as my heart. And he says, I'd be glad to keep him with me, to serve me in your place. That's how useful he is. He's changed. The world doesn't have the power to change like that. You remember back in the early 90s, I think it was 92, if I'm not mistaken, I was living in Los Angeles County at the time when um, the riots broke out over the whole Rodney King thing in South Central. I'm watching it on TV, and I'm wondering, because it was, I forget exactly how far I was away from it, but thinking, is this going to come up over the hill? Everybody just ripping everybody apart. That kind of division is just right underneath the surface all around us, waiting to explode. And I still remember, and you probably do too, if you're alive back then, Rodney King saying on, on national television in a tearful manner, he says, well, can't, can't, can't we just get along? It's a good question. Can't, can't, can't we just get along? The answer to that is as long as our sinful impulses rule men's hearts, people won't get along. It'll eventually just explode. It might go back underground for a while, but then it'll explode again. And we're seeing it once again, you know, as our, our world is now fractured by war yet again. But there's one person who can heal the heart and break the rule of sin over the human heart so that we can begin to live differently. And that's the gospel of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the love of God. So here you have it, man's changed heart. And Paul already knows, he's confident, he says that a little bit later on, I'm confident about you. So you have two men who have the Spirit of God in them, who have been changed by the gospel. And when you have two people who have been changed by the gospel, there's the possibility of genuine, deep-seated reconciliation, oneness, and unity. But it starts with that change. So we have the capacity in here, for those who are true believers, we have the capacity to be one with each other. doesn't mean we're going to be best friends with each other. doesn't mean we're going to like everything about each other, because we don't. But we're still family, and you fight for family. That's what you do. You fight to be at one with family, and hopefully not fight against each other, but fighting for it. Willingness to confess and repent and forgive and do the difficult work of being one. Why? Because the gospel demands it, and the world needs to see it which is why it ought to be a really high priority for God's people, his church, 
to visibly display the power of the gospel. Now, this is an important point. It tells us that the, that the gospel can do what the world can't do without the power of God. It also teaches us that you have to have two willing parties. Philemon has to be willing, and Onesimus has to be willing. And since they have changed hearts, it's a possibility. So you have to have two. If I want to be one with somebody who doesn't want to be at one with me, or it reconciled to me, it's not going to happen. But again, to show the importance, this is how important, right? The whole letter is about this. Second, word, risk. Christian reconciliation takes risks. I say risk because whenever you sacrifice something without knowing what the conclusion is going to be, then it's a risk. You make an investment, it's a sacrifice, put your money into an investment, but you don't know what's going to happen with that investment. Well, that's a risk you're taking. Well, there's always risks in life. So when there's a sacrifice and you don't know what the conclusion is, that is risk. And whenever we seek reconciliation, it's risky business. That is, it's hard, it's difficult. You might get rejected if you reach out. That's painful. However, I think Christianity is about placing principle before preference. Love before comfort. Sacrifice before emotional safety. Faith over fear. Isn't that right? I'm going to walk by faith, even when it's a scary situation, and I'm going to call somebody, I'm going to write somebody a note knowing they might never respond back to me, or they might say, you know what, screw you. And we keep doing it, because that's what Christians do. So if you look at this, each one of these parties is taking a risk. Paul, Onesimus the slave, converted slave, and Philemon. The sacrifice for Paul is like, Here's this, this man I'm calling my heart, and I'm sending him back, not sure how you're going to respond. That's a risk. Are you going to stomp on my heart? How is Philemon going to treat him when he returns? Paul's taking a risk, sending him back. Onesimus, the converted slave, is taking a risk. He's making a choice to go back. How is he going to respond? How is my master going to respond? Now, you know, you put yourself in his place, which I know is hard because we don't have a slave culture. But we have an employee-employer culture. Imagine deciding one day, I'm not going to work today or tomorrow or the next day or the next day or the day after that. And you leave your employer high and dry. The team that you work with now has to find somebody, train somebody to do your job. How do you think your boss would feel? Well, he'd fire you for one. But I, I'd venture to say he'd be pretty upset. The sense, of course, is that this runaway slave probably stole from him. So now he's got to go back and face the music. And he makes a choice to do it. He could run away farther, but he doesn't. He's now a follower of Jesus, and he knows what he's got to do. He's got to do the hard thing and go back and face what he did. That's a risk. 
Then there's Philemon. He's got to trust Paul's word that he's really changed. And then he has to do the difficult work of forgiveness and reconciliation and embracing him as a brother. Those are risks. It's risky business. It's a sacrifice. Christianity is. I mean, our great king made the ultimate sacrifice on a cross. It wasn't safe. It was sacrificial. And then he tells us, as his people, guess what? you got to bear a cross too. Guess what? That's not comfortable. It shouldn't be comfortable. But the difficult work of being a Christian to mend relationships sometimes requires you to, to bear a cross and take a risk. Put yourself out there. Place principle before your own preference for comfort. So it takes a risk. I know it's not comfortable to, 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 to invite somebody to coffee that you're at odds with. Like I said, it takes, both have to be willing, but man, maybe we should be a little bit more uncomfortable, a little more risky. We don't take enough risks, I don't think. And third, said providence. Providence, by the way, for those who don't know, is the belief that God has ordered all things. Everything from galactic structures down to sparrows down to the cells that make up your body. He has ordered them all. And though from our perspective it looks very chaotic sometimes and looks accidental at times, the fact of the matter, God has an order to it. He's able to somehow order chaos to do his will. The classic text, of course, is Romans 8.28. You know that God works all things together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose, all things he works, manages, brings it to its purpose, his good purpose for his people. Ephesians 1.11, it tells us that he works all things according to the counsel of his will, all things. Which includes the ability to bend evil for good and to bring light out of darkness and life out of death. The classic example of that, the best example, of course, is the most brutal crime ever, 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 ever committed was the murder of the only innocent man ever to live, and that is Jesus Christ on a cross. And that evil brought us salvation. God brings good by bending evil to his will. So here you have Paul's appeal to providence. So check this out. This is, this is wonderful stuff. Now, providence has its sticky points where people might feel a little upset over the fact that if God has ordered all things and there is evil in the world, then, then, then how do I understand that? And it's been, a, it's been a, a tough spot for Christians for, well, since the beginning of time. But it's also a wonderful gift to know that God orders the world, even bends evil to his will. And he comes out here. Verse 15, for, now he's given an explanation, this perhaps is why he, that is Onesimus, was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, 
no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I love this. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you. The why speaks to purpose. Now, the why behind why Onesimus ran away at the beginning, the slave, who knows? Maybe there was an attractive girl in Rome that he wanted. Or maybe he just wanted his freedom. We don't know exactly what his why was, the purpose. But Paul's seeing that there's a bigger why. There's a bigger hand behind this. And, and it's, 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 it's almost obvious to see. It's like, okay, so he made a bad choice. I mean, it was against the law, Roman law, to run away. But look what happened. He ran into me, the apostle Paul, and he got saved. His soul was saved because he ran away. And perhaps it's for this very reason, so now I can send him back to you so he's not a slave anymore, but a, a brother, not just a brother, but a beloved brother. A beloved brother, not just a slave, but now a brother in the flesh and also in the Lord, which I think means a brother in this earthly life, which would speak to the issue of slavery, and a brother in the Lord. That is, he's indirectly saying, make him your brother in all of life. You see the hand of providence behind this. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta look behind the, the particular why to the bigger why. And we don't do this often very well. When painful things happen in our life, when somebody slights us or ignores us, we tend to stop there. And then we just, we see it for the pain that it is. And we oftentimes, because we don't see any farther, we allow it to kind of smolder into an anger and into a bitterness and into a judgment where then now there is complete separation. When Paul is able to kind of realign the perspective of Philemon going, just hear me out here. His actions got him saved. And now you get back a brother. That's the big hand of God moving behind things. And for us to recognize as Christians who believe that there are no accidents in life, to ask those questions, okay, this happened to me. What good is going to come out of this? Because God is good. And he orders the world. He's sovereign over the circumstances of my life, including the painful ones. You may not see it immediately. You may not even see it. But oftentimes you do. How good God is even in the difficult things. And if you can begin to see things that way, well, then it, it lessens the angst that keeps us from being able to reconcile. So here you have this, this wonderful approach. Instead of canceling people, Paul takes the aim of, listen, I'm going to do this the gospel way. I'm going to make sure we affirm family. We're going to pray. We're going to appeal to love. I'm going to show you that this is, the change has happened in the heart. It's worth taking the risk. And God's hand is moving in this. That's healing. That's reconciling. That brings family back together. I don't like messages like this. You know why? For the same reason you don't like messages like this. 
Because it means you have to do something about it. It means that the name in your head of the person that you have either offended or has offended you ought to be dealt with. You ought to take a risk. I hate messages like that. And I think you do too. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus and be willing to take up the cross, it's worth it. And not just for our own sake. It's worth it for the sake of the name of Jesus and what it says to the people outside that the gospel we believe in is real and it works. And I'm willing to take a darn risk to see change happen. That's what it means to be the church. And my friend Endry, who I talked to this last Wednesday, who confessed, I needed to see family love each other. A potent reminder that the world outside needs to see family loving, forgiving, and taking a risk to be one together. Now we got to do what we got to do with it. Amen? Amen? Lord, we thank you for your goodness and kindness um, as we get ready to take your bread and your cup, which is a symbol of your life, your body, and your blood. I pray that you would do a work in us, allow us to recognize that even in partaking of this loaf, we partake in the body of Christ because we are one body. And so we ask that you would be at work in our hearts and lives um, through the taking of communion together in Jesus' name. Amen. Come as you will. If I could have those who are serving come forward. Um, the only requirement is you just need to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ to come and participate in this. We have gluten, gluten-free. And just come and think through the implications of this message.